Thank you for tuning into this webinar, conducting a compensation review, why now and how to get it done. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Carrie Cox. Carrie has experience in a variety of human resource functions, including a solid knowledge of labor laws, compensation structures, employee classification, benefits administration, performance management, and human resource best practices. She serves clients in a number of industries, including manufacturing, construction, banking, and not-for-profits. She's a Society for Human Resource Management Certified Professional, certified as a professional in human resources by the Human Resource Certification Institute, and a certified practitioner for the Meyer-Briggs Type Indicator. As organizations grow, it's essential to recruit and retain the best talent, and a key component of that is appropriate compensation. When pay is viewed as fair for the work performed, employees are more likely to be engaged and satisfied with their work. But pay has to be right before other employment aspects even matter. In this webinar, we'll discuss the importance of designing a compensation strategy and structure, the basis, basic process for conducting a compensation review, and how you can establish a base pay structure for your organization. Thank you for attending today's webinar. I'm excited to be able to talk to you all about everyone's favorite subject, money, or maybe it's everyone's least favorite subject. I don't know. I suppose it depends on your perspective and how much you have. Compensation is one of those things that can cause you a lot of headaches and even legal troubles if you don't have a process or system in place to manage it. So conducting periodic reviews of your compensation and establishing a structure for how you pay employees can help you manage the pain and the legal risk. It's important to get compensation right, obviously. Pay isn't typically a driver of employee engagement, that commitment to the organization to go above and beyond and give extra effort, but it does have a link. And pay can certainly drive disengagement from employees. If you're trying to get your employees more engaged in their work, increasing pay doesn't typically help with that, unless there's an issue with pay. Employees who understand why they're paid the wage they earn and feel it is competitive with others in similar positions express higher pay satisfaction. When employees are satisfied with pay, that allows them to focus on their work. When the opposite is true, when employees don't understand why they're paid the wage they earn or feel that they are underpaid when compared to others, then pay becomes the only thing that matters to them. Money isn't everything, but to them it becomes the only thing they can think about and focus on. So in today's session, we'll address the importance of assessing your organization's compensation, why it's really critical to be doing it now, and we'll review the basic process steps to getting or to setting up a base pay structure. But before we get started, I'd like to get some feedback from you. So I'm going to go ahead and load the first poll question. And as Mike has said, about 60% um, are saying that recruitment of employees with the right skill set and abilities is the um, uh, overall response rate, about a third of you said retention of key employees, and uh, some of you are concerned with legal protection for the organization. A well-thought-out compensation structure with uh, maintenance checkpoints along the way can help us with all of those things that you identified as concerned. So it can help with recruitment of new employees, retention of current employees, and also provide some legal protection for you as well. Having a structure in place that's reviewed and assessed regularly lets us know where we are in terms of our pay compared to the market so that we can be more competitive in recruitment and retention efforts to attract and retain employees. If we don't regularly look at market pay rates, we have no way of knowing how we compare to our competi competition in terms of pay. Conducting a compensation study and establishing a compensation structure also gives us a framework that allows our managers to compensate fairly and equitably for employees in the same jobs. This framework, when used appropriately, can protect us from claims of pay discrimination if we can document why we chose to pay an employee at a certain rate. Structures don't have to lock us into a certain pay point, though. Rather, they give us a starting point for the discussion. I'll give you an example. Um, this year I was helping some, uh, or in recruitment of some engineering interns for a client, and typically they're all hired at about the minimum of the range. But this year, as an example, we hired two different interns. One was paid at a higher rate than the other. Well, the one intern that was paid higher um, was not in a protected class, 
and the intern that was paid at a lower rate happened to be in a protected class. Is this okay? Well, it depends on the situation. In this case, the male intern that was paid higher actually had experience from a similar internship position last summer, so the manager opted to pay him more since he wouldn't require as much close supervision and could immediately start contributing to projects. The pay range gave us a starting point for the discussion, and we were able to explain and document why we paid the male intern more than the female intern who was in a protected class. So this could serve as legal protection in the future if we should have any um, pay discrimination claims. We know it's important to regularly review compensation, and certain factors make it even more timely now. We're at a critical point in being able to recruit and retain top talent. Sometimes we've referred to this even as the perfect storm. Uh, but let's look at some of the trends in employment to review why it's even more timely today. As we continue to see economic recovery, people are starting to leave organizations, or at least think about leaving. Many organizations halted or slashed pay increases during the recession in order to avoid laying off their employees, but have those cuts been restored in full? If your employees were loyal through the recession because they needed a steady job, that loyalty may be starting to run its course. Any guess who will leave first? Do you think it's your bottom performer who continues to earn that paycheck despite his disinterest or disengagement in his work? Or do you think it'll be your top performer who's been key in getting you through the recession despite the lack of pay rewards in the down economy? Obviously, it's going to be the top performers who are more likely to leave because it's easier for them to find work elsewhere. Pay isn't necessarily the work factor that drives performance, but if your pay isn't in the ballpark of what others are paying, you're not even in the game. How can you even compete when you're not showing up to the ballpark? Let's look at some of the numbers. Unemployment in April dropped to 6.3% nationally, and that's its lowest point since September of 2008. As a reference, before the recession, it was around 5%, so we're getting back to those pre-recessionary levels. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, voluntary separations continue to climb, an indicator that more jobs are available and people are seeking work elsewhere. Do you think that these are your top performers or your bottom performers that are leaving for other jobs? It's probably the employees you want to keep, and it's typically easier for them to find employment elsewhere. According to a recent poll by Gallup, only 30% of employees are engaged in their work. That's a significant amount of your workforce who are unengaged or disengaged. And guess why employees who are disengaged leave? Pay. Oftentimes, it's related to pay. Disengaged employees are two and a half times more likely than, than engaged employees to leave for jobs for their to leave their job. Excuse me for any pay increase, any amount. While you may think that it's best to get these employees out of your organization, think about the cost to hire a new employee. What if you could just get them re-engaged instead of leaving? And that's not what we're going to focus on in today's webinar, um, but it is an important point to consider. And um, another of our AGH staff members had just done a recent webinar on employee engagement, which if you'd like a link to that, we'd be happy to send you. You can just send us a message through the question box. According to a 2014 Job Seeker Nation report conducted by JobVite, 71% of the U.S. labor force is in the market for a new job. That means they're unemployed and actively seeking work, employed and actively seeking work, or employed and open to a new job. Let me let that sink in for just a second. 71% of the workforce. 51% of employed workers are either actively seeking or open to a new job. That's half of your workforce open to leaving. If we break those numbers down a little bit more, 58% are under the age of 40, 26% make over $100,000 a year, and millennials are most likely to say they'll leave in the next 12 months if the job market improves. Do you think we're talking about your employees? You better think we're talking about your employees. We are. Pay is becoming even more important to employee job satisfaction as well. In the recession, employees focused more on job security, and that's already shifted. According to the Society for Human Resource Management Employee Job Satisfaction and Engagement Survey report that came out earlier this year, 
compensation or pay has become the top factor leading to job satisfaction in 2013. The last time pay or compensation was number one was in 2007, before the recession. We know that job satisfaction doesn't equal employee engagement, but without pay satisfaction, you can't expect engagement. When employees aren't satisfied with pay, that becomes their focus. Employees are refocusing on pay, and you should too. When it comes to pay races, employees are starting to expect them again. As you can see from the graph here, we've been pretty stagnant in pay raises over the last few years. Some, the amounts are such that it may not even cover inflation. Employee confidence hit a new high with 44% reporting that they expect a pay raise in the next 12 months. That's at its highest level since um, 2008 when Glassdoor, who conducted this survey, actually started the survey. Employees are also more confident that they'll be able to find a job match to their experience and their current compensation levels. So they're confident that they should get a pay raise, or if they go seek employment elsewhere, they're, confi they're confident that they can find a job match to their current compensation. If they're not going to get that pay from you, then they're confident that they can seek it from another employer. So what's the point? More employed people are looking for jobs. Pay has risen again to the top in terms of importance for employees and job seekers. And employees are expecting higher pay increases. How do you know if your pay is competitive? I want to go ahead and get your feedback on our next poll question. And I'll go ahead and load that here. But just want to get an idea of when's the last time you conducted a pay um, assessment compared to the external market. So when did you last review your compensation relative to external pay? So it looks like just over a third of you have conducted a market study within the last year, so um, excellent. Um, another 18% within the last two years, which is great. Um, a lot of you haven't done it within the last five years, or it's been more than five years since you have uh, conducted a market study. So um, for you in particular, it's really critical that you think about doing that now. So let's think about how we do that. There are some basic steps in the process, um, and we'll go over these in more detail. The first thing that you want to consider is what is your compensation strategy or philosophy, and it's important to know how your pay for employee strategy fits in with your business strategy. It really serves as the base or foundation for your compensation review. Then you would conduct a job analysis, so that would include gathering information about the nature and level of work performed in each position. Following that, you go through a process of job documentation, so that's where you create a job description or position description detailing functions of the job. After you have that process step completed, you can conduct the job evaluation, which is how you assign worth to a job either internally or through an external market survey. Following that, you can create the job worth hierarchy, which is um, just kind of an illustration of where the jobs fit relative to each other. And then finally, you can create the base pay structure, which will serve as your framework for pay decisions based on the job worth hierarchy. As we think about conducting a um, compensation study, which area do you feel like you could use more guidance? That's going to be our next poll question. And some of the answers that you can identify there is identifying uh, your organization strategy related to the compensation review, performing job analysis, preparing job documentation, conducting a job evaluation, or creating a base pay structure. And we have about a third of you already voted, and it seems a pretty big majority of you are kind of wondering if you, wondering how to, what that base pay structure is going to look like and could use some guidance on how to do that. Uh, we'll leave it open here for about 10 or 15 more seconds as we have about 80% of you responding, and I'll throw it back to Carrie for her to take you guys. Keep your votes coming. All right, looks like we have over 90%, so I'll go ahead and close that and share the results with you. 
And about 50% of you said creating a base pace structure is the area where you could receive more guidance. Um, good thing you're on this webinar then. We're going to obviously talk about that. And we'll hit on the others as well. So about a quarter of you said identifying your organization's strategy, 18% um, performing job analysis, and about 9% total between preparing job documentation and conducting a job evaluation. So let's start by thinking about compensation strategy. So this is going to be the base of your structures, so you need to assess that first. Um, before you even start to think about looking at the numbers or how you evaluate your jobs, you really have to have an idea of what your organization's compensation strategy is. Most of us can probably speak to our organization's business strategy in terms of the products or services we sell and which target customers and markets, but can you really identify how your strategy related to compensation links to it? Having the right employees in place and the right roles is a critical piece to achieving your organization's business strategy goals, and there are many factors that play into your ability to attract and retain the right employees organizational culture, connection to the work, work-life balance, career advancement paths, learning and development opportunities, employee benefits, just to name a few, and of course pay. Pay is one of the pieces of the puzzle, but it's a really important one to get right. Before you can start to analyze or create your organization's pay structure, you have to know how to align your compensation strategy with your business strategy. So some of the things that you want to think about is what is the mix of pay in the strategy? So thinking about how much base pay you provide or how much bonus or incentive pay you have or what the long-term incentives are for positions. And it may vary depending upon the age of the business and the types of the employees that you need for success. It can also be different by role or department. So for example, sales staff may have a much higher bonus potential than production staff. And same thing with executive, for instance. They may have long-term incentive pay included as part of their compensation structure, while managers do not. So you have to assess um, what's right for your organization. Another piece to the compensation strategy is will internal equity of positions be considered, or is your strategy based solely on market rates? Will you actually conduct an internal assessment where you value positions against each other internally, or do you just look at the market to determine what you're paying for each position? When you're looking at the market, and most organizations have some way of comparing to market, even if they do an internal equity assessment as well, you have to determine if you're going to lead, lag, or pay at market rates. So if you're leading the market, then you're paying higher than median pay rates. If you're lagging the market, you're paying less than those median pay rates. Most organizations try to pay at those median pay rates in the market. Sometimes the strategy, though, may involve not um, paying at those median rates. So traditionally, government, for example, may have had a lower pay uh, rate compared to market, but they offered a much more robust benefits package. Nonprofits, for example, may not always be able to pay at market rates, and they may not be able to offer a benefits package to offset that. But they really promote affinity with the mission and attract employees um, who can get behind that mission. And then think about educational institutions. Sometimes they may not be able to pay as much, um, so they're lagging the market. And maybe their benefits are, are comparable. But think about offering a particular benefit of reduced or free tuition. I know a number of places that do that, and they attract a certain employee base um, because of that. So we assess and create compensation structures for a number of clients in various industries, and I've only worked with one that's made a decision to, cre to create their structure at a point higher than the median. And they actually chose 75th percentile, um, and, and they feel like that has made them really competitive in their marketplace, and that's just part of their strategy. They're willing to pay more and um, maybe offset some of the other areas with benefits or things like that. Another thing to consider is how do employee benefits fit into your discussion, or do they? Some organizations choose to look at pay and benefits as part of the same bucket and structure their strategy or philosophy accordingly. So as I referred to earlier, governments, for example, 
maybe they pay a little less on salaries, but they offer more benefits. So if you look at it in a total package, um, that gives you a more package deal. Once you understand your compensation strategy, it's important to document it and make sure people understand what your compensation philosophy statement is. One example would be ABC Company sets target pay rates at the 50th percentile of the competitive market, provides incentives for meeting stretch goals that result in pay delivery at the 75th percentile, and provides long-term incentives in the form of full-value stock options to senior professionals and managers to align objectives with those of shareholders. So that's a statement where they've established that they're going to pay base at market rate, but they're going to provide incentives that allow employees to get up to 75th percentile rates. And then for the senior professionals and managers, there are even more long-term options for them. That's a really clear compensation strategy, and they would be able to build their base pay structure around that and be able to communicate with their managers and, and employees what it means to the organization. Provides clear guidance for that initial setup and that ongoing maintenance of the compensation in infrastructure. The other thing that you want to consider is making sure your senior management is part of the process in establishing your strategy. It's really important to get that buy-in as they will have to work within the guidelines you establish, so it's important to get them part of the process. So I'm going to go ahead and poll you one more time, and I know we're front-loading a number of our polls here, but just to get a feel for you in terms of what is your compensation strategy in your organization. So this one is a little more split on the responses. Um, about a third say you don't have a formal strategy. 18% um, have a well-defined strategy, 27% said you had an idea of where you'd like to be, and 21% said strategy for some but not all employees. So once we have that strategy in place, or actually concurrently, you can start doing your job analysis. Um, so let's talk about what that process looks like. This is the phase in which information is gathered to complete the job evaluation process. So if you don't know what are the pieces of the job, it's hard for you to compare them internally or compare externally to the market. So it's really important to have a good understanding of what's required of the role, including the responsibilities and tasks, skills, knowledge, and abilities. So let's sit here are some of the most common methods for analyzing a job, and it's up to you to determine what works best in your organization, and you may use a different mix of methods um, for different positions even. So observation would include directly observing an employee, recording what they do, how the work is done, and how long it takes. And you can do this continuously over a given period of time or through sampling, which would include just observing them over random shorter periods of time. A questionnaire is a pretty effective method for conducting job analysis. So this is where an employee would complete a questionnaire identifying their job tasks and the amount of time they spend on tasks, the level of supervision, uh, the decision-making latitude, how they impact the organization, things like that. The interview is another form of questionnaire, but obviously an oral form. So a job analyst would interview the employee to learn about their job tasks. Um, sometimes an interview can be a good thing to do over a questionnaire just because you can drill in more detail to different things, but obviously with an interview that can take up a significant amount of somebody's time. For positions with multiple employees, you can conduct a group interview or individual um, and then aggregate the responses. Another way to conduct job analysis would be have the employee keep a diary. So they list the tasks and record um, what they're doing and how the tasks are performed. A corollary to that would be a time study. So an employee would record the amount of time spent on each task as it's performed. It gives you an idea of what percentage of time they're devoting to key responsibilities. And then finally, another method is a checklist. So this is where employees would just check off boxes to identify their roles and responsibilities. Um, sometimes that's a good start, and then you can go back and ask follow-up questions as well. A combination of these methods may work best. You have to determine for which positions each one may work best, and you might use 
um, different methods for different positions. You should also involve supervisors for the process. Um, they should be in, in or reviewing the information the employee submits to make sure it's accurate. And they may be able to suggest ideas that the employee didn't include. Um, certain things to think about would include things employees do on an annual basis. So if, if the employee were um, conducting a diary study for you, then they wouldn't necessarily include the things they do on a um, quarterly or annual or semi-annual basis. They may forget some of those, so make sure you include those things as well. Good rule of thumb is to review job content a minimum of every three years to ensure accuracy. And um, you don't necessarily need to reevaluate a position until it changes by greater than 30% in the position responsibilities. So once we've conducted the job analysis, we can move on to the job documentation phase. Most of you felt like you had a pretty good handle on this, but I want to hit on a few things anyway. Um, this is where you write your formal job description or position description. And there are so many different formats out there, um, but the best ones are going to have the following in them. So first, you just want to have the general information. So that's including the title, the classification, whether the employee is exempt or non-exempt from overtime, um, who their supervisor is, if they have any direct reports, what department they're in, those kind of general things. Then you get into the responsibilities. So the information from the job analysis phase is critical here. And I like to include a general heading with the associated percentage of time, and then break the task out below it. And the reason I like to include timing is it, it helps us to evaluate whether a task is an essential function of the job, especially for compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act and Amendments Act. Um, and also, it can help us to determine if it's a major function for compliance with the Fair Labor Standards Act if we're looking at positions that are exempt. We also want to include the level of responsibility. So this would include how much decision-making they have um, capability of, do they supervise other people. And again, this is essential for helping you to assess whether the position may qualify for exemption from overtime. So it can protect you in those cases where you have somebody um, who was exempt and they felt like maybe they should have been non-exempt. Another section is the required skills, knowledge, and abilities. So you would include the education, experience, skills, certifications required. Um, and it may also be helpful to include what is required versus what is desired to help you assess candidates in recruiting or promotion. So, for example, if you see the experience there, um, we have two to three years HR generalist experience required, and then also two to three years industry experience preferred. So our preferred candidate is going to have both of those, but um, as a minimum requirement, we just want the HR experience. Finally, you should include some of the physical requirements or work environment in the position. And I know sometimes people balk at this, um, but it's really essential for you in terms of compliance with ADA. I know a lot of times when I review position descriptions for clients, they tend to leave this section off. Um, I was working with a client actually earlier this year, and we were reevaluating their position descriptions. And they had a requirement for a number of their positions where they have to climb ladders, climb stairs, be in confined spaces, even be up on rooftops a good percentage of the time. But they didn't have any of this listed in their job description. And you can just guess how that might create problems if they had conducted an initial phone screen of a candidate. Um, and then they came in for an interview, and we found out that they maybe had crutches or they had a wheelchair that they had to use on a regular basis, and they wouldn't be able to do those other things. So including that in the job description that you share up front is really a good way for you to have a little bit more legal protection as well. Once we um, get through that job documentation process is when we move on to job evaluation. So there are a couple of ways that you can do this. But you have to go back to that compensation strategy first and decide, is the organization's compensation strategy to value the internal job worth, the external market data, or both? So let's talk first about the job content approach, which would be looking at the internal job worth of the organization. 
And a lot of companies that I work with, they don't use this. Some of them do, though. So it's a different way for you to look at things than just looking at the market pay. This requires a more extensive process. So you're looking at the relative internal value determined between jobs based on the nature of the work performed. Values will be assigned to various work factors that you designate, also known as compensable factors. And typically, we see this in a point system. So I'm going to give you an example here of how positions could be scored. So in this case, we have four different compensable factors that we're looking at. So skill, what's required of the position in terms of experience or education. Responsibility, meaning um, how much responsibility do they have for either supervising others or influencing decisions within the organization. Effort, related to how much mental or physical effort they have to put forth in their job. And then working conditions, which um, has to do with where they're working or what kind of even outdoor conditions they may have to um, work in. So you can see in this example the um, skill level for an engineer at 160 points is much higher than the skill level for a CSR customer service representative. And then if you look on the last column, the working conditions for the field tech score higher due to the type of conditions required for the work. So the field tech actually scores higher than, say, the engineer who's higher in other areas. Um, because they're out in the field more, they're going to have to work in all kinds of weather conditions. To get the overall position score, you would just sum the individual scores for the position. You can actually weight your factors differently. So in this case, they were all weighted equally. Um, but you can decide that maybe in this case, the skill needs to be higher. So we would assign a percentage to that and reduce the other percentages accordingly. And then you would just um, calculate the total score based on that. So that's just a brief overview of what the job content approach can look like. The other um, approach would be market data approach. So you would be using your job descriptions you created in the previous step to match market survey data um, to the position. In the market data approach, you'd want to identify which benchmark jobs to use for market comparison. And as a general guideline, you want at least 50% of your jobs to be benchmarked. If you can't match about half of your jobs, you, you want to use the internal equity evaluation then, because you just won't be able to have enough information to compare enough of your positions to the market. And in smaller organizations, you may actually want to look at all of your positions according to market, or at least all of them that you can find a good match for. For jobs that don't have a match to your market resources, you can slot them into your system using that job content approach in a modified way. So if you have a unique position that doesn't have a market comparison, you can informally assess the relative job worth when you compare it to other positions in the organization for which you do have external market data. That position would then be placed in the same grade or um, along the same range of pay. When you're looking at your market resources and how to compare, you want to make sure you um, think about how many resources you've used. I usually think two to four is a good number, but it depends on each individual situation. Um, you want to determine which resources you use. So think about what data cuts you want. Are you going to look at just industry data? So you use an industry resource. Are you going to use data cuts looking at different geographic areas? You want to think about who's in your comparative group as you assess what resources to use. Does it make sense to compare to a wider industry than just your own? I would say if you're competing for talent with other industries, then yes, it does. And consider your recruitment area as you're looking at market pay sources. If you know, for example, that you would recruit nationally for a CEO, then you'd want to look at market pay on the national level. For a lot of positions, though, you're probably just recruiting in your local market, so it would be best to look at your local market data if possible. As you look at market resources, you'll also want to evaluate whether the data is reported by employees or employers. Typically, I would put more credibility into data reported by employers. 
Um, employees may think that if they report a higher number of wage that they make, then maybe that inflates things overall. So um, in the future, they might get a better pay raise. And also, employees may not understand the terminology, so they're not used to seeing what an employer would see when they, they participate in salary surveys. We already talked about um, the number of positions matched, so you want to make sure you have at least 50% that you can benchmark. And if you don't have that many, you might think more about the internal value assessment method. And then you can also consider doing a customized survey. So there are a lot of published data sources out there and a lot of good ones. But sometimes we have clients that come to us and they say, I want a very specific data set. So we actually can conduct compensation surveys. And you always want to make sure you use a third party source for that. Um, just related to some of the Sherman antitrust regulation that, uh, act, that does apply to customized, customized surveys. So just keep that in mind if you're using a customized market survey. Um, it is something, though, that usually you're going to get a smaller data set. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Once you've conducted your um, job evaluation, so whether you did this internally or use market data, you would just create a job worth hierarchy by putting the positions in order. So in this case, for simplicity, um, my positions magically are in the same order for the market wage and the point factor method. But um, if this was the market data that we pulled for each of these positions, they would just order out this way. and when if we were doing the internal equity assessment where we assign the points to each one, you can see they're just in order by points. So that's a pretty simple step there, but that's going to be the base for our base pay structure. Some other things that you want to consider as you create your base pay structure would be, is it internally equitable? So make sure you create a structure that is equitable amongst positions across the organization. You want to make sure that just because there are similar positions in different departments, they shouldn't be paid vastly different if they're doing the same amount of work. You also want your structure to be externally competitive. So that's typically why we tie in the market pay assessment into the base pay structure. You want to make sure it's affordable for your organization. There's no sense in establishing a compensation strategy where you pay at 75 or at the 75th percentile in terms of market pay, if you can't afford to pay that, um, it's, it's just a, a waste of time and effort if you're consistently frustrated that you can't pay employees at the values that you established in your strategy. You want to make sure your pay structure is understandable by those who use it or by those who see it. So some organizations keep their structures just within the human resources group. Some of them share it with a larger management team, and some share with everyone on or in their organization, so all, all employees will have access to it. You just want to make sure that everybody understands how to use it and um, what the guidelines are for it. A good base pay structure will also be able to provide legal defense for you in terms of pay discrepancies. You can help justify why you paid someone a certain way. The structure that you create should be efficient and capable of being updated or reshaped for the business in the future. So you want to make sure you have a structure where you can look at um, just changing some of the um, ranges based on changes in your organization or being able to add positions easily into it. You don't want to add five positions to the company and then have to redo your entire pay structure. Make sure yours allows for movement. You want to make sure it's appropriate for your organization, so make it specific to you, and that it provides employee perception of fairness. So if you're sharing the information with employees, make sure they understand and, and can see why the structure was created the way it was. And of course, you want to create alignment of employee efforts and business objectives with your structure so that you can attract, retain, and motivate employees. As you think about your pay structure, you first have to know, again, based back on that compensation strategy piece, we first figured out, are your structures going to be based on job content, so that internal equity or scoring system, or are you just going to base the structure on market data, or will it be a blend? So again, back to that strategy that you determined first. Also, how many structures do you need? We have one structure for the entire organization, or do you need separate pay structures for different levels or areas? 
So for example, the shop or production facility may have a different structure for uh, than the office or management or executive levels. So some organizations that are larger or more complex, they may have a number of different pay structures. But if you're a smaller organization, you may just need one and everybody can fit into that one. Once you know how many pay structures you need, you start to create the various structures and you want to determine how many grades are needed in each one. And there are best practice guidelines I'll share with you in a minute here. You also need to think about whether you have very wide grades or very narrow grades. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Once you start to um, build your base, base pay structure, you begin with the job worth hierarchy and start to look for groupings of positions that are similar in job content score or market pay, depending upon which method you are using. And then this is the basis for building your structure. So let's look at an example, and I showed you this job worth hierarchy previously. But let's look at the market data first. So if I were building a base pay structure, and this is a sample of the market data that I pulled, I would think that the file clerk and the AP clerk may be grouped together. Those look like pretty similar market wages, so I'm just making an initial assessment here. The financial analyst and the accountant, they appear to be paid on a similar level based on the market data as well. And then we've got the accounting manager out there on his own. When I, so those would actually form the groupings for my wage structure as I get started. If I had looked at the point factor method in my organization, I might actually think that the file clerk and the AP clerk are a little bit different. So the scoring appears to be uh, more different than uh, alike in that case. So I may actually think that those two positions will stand on their own. So they may be in different grades as I start to build my pay structure. So in this case, I would look at building a structure where my file clerk, my AP clerk are in separate grades, my financial analyst and my accountant are grouped together, and then my accounting manager is separate as well. If my market pay was um, listed there, then I would start to look at building my pay structure based on that market wage. So those numbers that you see there would start to look like my median points for each of those grades. And again, building a pay structure is part science, part art. We do base the position groupings within a grade on data. So we looked at the market wage, and we thought that financial analysts and accountant were similar, so we grouped those. Um, but there are guidelines for determining um, other pieces of it Part of it, though, is just subjectivity. So if you haven't done one of these, oftentimes it's good to get guidance or talk to people that have done one before, and they can help you to build a structure. The other thing that you want to think about, too, is the um, alignment with external market in terms of pay, but also your internal equity, even if you didn't do that job scoring method. So for example, if a customer service rep was paid lower in the market, but I felt like customer service was really important in my organization, it would make sense for me to put that position into a higher grade, even though the market pay didn't let me know that it should be there. So we may have some positions that don't match exactly with what the data says in the market. I actually did a recent study with a client this year, and they felt like customer service reps were abundant in their community, and they had no trouble recruiting them. They had a good uh, training program in place, so their onboarding was efficient. And they actually scored the position lower in their organization and didn't pay at the market rates for that position. So again, you need to make it specific to your organization, make it work for you. Um, there are some other guidelines that I want to go over with you, too. So we've looked at that job worth hierarchy to start um, assigning some of the positions to grades. And when we have our grades groups, then we'll start to determine the midpoint. So we would look at the um, median or other data point that you choose based on your compensation strategy. Once we have that midpoint established for each grade, then we want to think about what the range spread is. So that's going to be the width of the pay range from minimum to maximum. And typically that's going to be from about 
um, for your entry-level type jobs to 50% or even higher for your advanced level jobs at the higher end. Once you have that range spread, you'll want to look at the midpoint differential between grades. So this is going to be the difference in the midpoint in two adjacent grades. And again, there are some guidelines for that. So maybe 5% between midpoints in grades for clerical or production, up to 35% or even higher for executive level. Typically, as you um, move up in a, in a base pay structure, the ranges are wider and the midpoint differentials are further apart. And it just allows for more um, flexibility in, in determining management and executive level pay. The overlap of ranges can also be different for every organization. So some choose to have significant overlap in their grades and others no overlap, but typically with most I see it somewhere in the middle. And again, that allows you for more flexibility and fluidity of movement between grades. For example, when you have internal promotions. When you think about uh, base pay design, it's the same process when you establish a new structure or if you're reviewing existing compensation structures. And I'd recommend you review it at least every other year. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to do a full market analysis, but you may just select a few benchmark or key positions to review against market data and see if you might need to move your position. You can do that based on a percentage. So if positions have increased by an average of 3% over time, you might adjust your midpoints. 3%, for example, or you can use um, inflation indices as well. As you're reviewing your compensation structure, you want to consider some key questions, especially if turnover or recruiting is an issue, you want to identify if pay is a cause of that. And if so, you may need to adjust certain positions within your structure. You also want to make sure you do an assessment to um, determine if employees in protected classes are paid differently and employees in non-protected categories. We all know that this is illegal, but if you don't review it on a regular basis, discrepancies can creep into your pay structures. So for example, um, research shows us that men tend to negotiate higher job offers and promotional pay increases than women. So just a fact. They tend to get paid at higher numbers to start with, and then they'll get higher pay as they get promoted over time. So think about what this does to your wage structure. If um, this, whether this is intentional or not, it could be viewed as discriminatory if the job responsibilities appear to be the same for the man and the woman, but the man's just always negotiated higher. If you have a solid base pay structure in place and you're regularly reviewing, then it can help keep things more equitable. When you um, look at your base pay or you start a new structure or you're reviewing a structure, you want to make sure you're comparing incumbent pay to the established or new structure. Um, what you want to look at are if there are discrepancies or they do just to performance or tenure. You want to compare the employees and where they fall in the range um, to other employees. So for example, we would, if we had a grade and employees fell between the minimum of the grade and the midpoint, we want to look and make sure those are the employees who haven't been with the organization very long or maybe just aren't as good a performers. If you um, have somebody that's been with the organization for 20 years and they're paid the same rate as someone that's been there five, make sure the discrepancy is performance and not something else. If there's an issue with that, though, you'll want to develop a plan to correct it. If you find employees who are at the top of the maximum of their range, you would want to redline or um, prevent future increases for them until market rates catch up. That doesn't mean they can't get paid more. Sometimes organizations will provide bonus amounts for those employees so that they still look like they're earning more year over year. It just doesn't um, add into their base pay structure, so it doesn't compound year to year. And if you find employees who are below the minimum, then you want to make sure that you bring those up so that they're um, within your wage grade structure. If you find that your salaries aren't in alignment with market, and I think that's pretty common, especially in certain positions, you want to prioritize where it hurts most. Think about if you have high turnover positions or key positions that you want to make sure employees stay in. And remember internal equity. If you underpay your custodian, for example, maybe that's okay because it's easier to find someone to fill that role. But if you work in a secure or sterile environment, that may require the position to have security.
security clearance or special knowledge of handling chemicals, so you may need to consider paying them higher than market. Just make sure you understand how or why you value particular positions, and you can document that and justify that. And as you build your structures, remember, market pay is just the average. You have to make it specific to your organization. And if you need to move some of your positions around because you think it fits better in your company, then, then you do that. We focused on base pay. I just wanted to throw out some of the other elements of compensation um, just to keep in mind for you because these may factor into your compensation strategy. But consider if there's incentive or bonus pay that you offer long-term incentives. So um, these I would recommend for performance-based measures or key employees typically. Um, think about how employer-paid taxes actually contribute to an employee's compensation amount from your perspective. The employee may not think so. And then also employee benefits. And make sure you're communicating those amounts on benefits and taxes to your employees so they have a full understanding of what their compensation amount really looks like. Before we conclude, I wanted to get in the final poll question. So I'm going to go ahead and load that one. And I just wanted to know what concerns you most when thinking about conducting a compensation review? So as you can see there, um, there's four options you can select from. The first being senior leadership support. The second being budgeting for adjustments. Third is the technical process of conducting the compensation review. And the last option is uh, whether or not your employees understand the process and or structure you've decided to go with based on this process. So far, we've got about 75% of you coming in, and it looks like budgeting for adjustments is the biggest concern right now with the technical process of it being a close second. Um, I just want to remind everyone, you can go ahead and submit your questions now or anytime in the next couple of slides as Carrie sticks around after the presentation's conclusion to answer those questions. So I'll throw it back to Carrie. Thanks, Mike. I'm going to go ahead and close the poll here and show you the results. And kind of widespread on this one, um, budgeting obviously a concern, and we just talked about that a little bit. Um, you want to make sure you have a plan in place when, when you're conducting uh, one of these compensation reviews. And it doesn't have to happen all at once. So if you find you're really underpaying employees, you can phase that in over a time period. So you want to make sure you can build that in. There are ways to really manage each of the concerns, so you just you have to make sure you have a plan, you use your resources, and follow through. So it, it may take an investment of your time and effort, um, and definitely it takes some financial in investment, but consider the price if you don't conduct regular compensation reviews. You may not be able to recruit the best employees, you may be at risk of losing your current employees, and finally you may face legal risk if your pay practices show discrimination even if they're unintentional. 